Weirdo bookworms, unite. We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Some readers out there may look down on you for your love of horror, sci-fi, and fantasy, but not us. So stop by as we discuss what we've been reading. Hi, genre junkies. It's Sandra. And this is Scott. And it's the most wonderful time of the the year. year. It's spooky Halloween October season. Yay, it's Halloween season. It's October, which means every day is even extra Halloween. Because every day is already Halloween. Extra being uh, being the operative word. Yeah. So it's just even more so. It's just dialing up the Halloween and we're so excited. And, and you know what that means? It means every book we review this month is a scary book, is a horror novel. That's right. So this is really exciting. We're happy to be here. We're happy to be talking about a particularly spooky, fun book with you tonight. Uh, as you may have noticed, we had an interview with the author of this piece. Yes, Jimmy Kajolis is fantastic. We are so excited to get to talk to him about his second book and talk to him a little bit about his first book, which we reviewed last year. Yes, so the book we're reviewing tonight is Minor Profits. This is his second YA, if you will, novel. Though, again, as always, don't don't box it in. Don't stress too much about the YA moniker on there. Uh, his first book was The Good Demon, which was a book we both loved. I especially just... Ugh, loved it, loved it, loved it. Felt so connected to that book. And we could not wait to read this one. And we got to talk to Jimmy, which was even more amazing. So look forward to that between our initial review and the spoiler section. So Scott, uh, talk to me. Any genre-related things, especially spooky-adjacent things, uh, have you experienced Uh, lately? I mean, nothing specifically. I've just... Wrong. You're wrong. I'm wrong. Yes. I'll jump in. I'll do this one for both of us. We went and saw one of our favorite movies. (gasps) we did. Specifically one of our favorite horror movies, but also one of our favorite movies that we watch every year on Halloween. We got to see Halloween 3 on the big screen. We sure did. We got to see Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, um, at the Roxy Stadium in Santa Rosa. It was absolutely amazing. It was in conjunction with another show that I'm on, you know I'm on three, hint, 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 uh, which is The Cult Show. So we got to do that. We're going to be reviewing that uh, movie later on The Cult Show later this month. So keep your eyes out for that if you're a Halloween fan or a horror movie fan in general. And then, of course, you know, as announced in our last episode, my other show that I'm uh, co-host on, uh, Spooky Slumber Party, is going really, really well. We've got more episodes of that coming out. It's kind of a bi-monthly podcast, but kind of ramping up some episodes for you all. It comes out every other Friday, so it should be out this Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so very, very exciting. We might have some other little field trips and uh, treats up our sleeves for the spooky season. So keep an eye out for that. But without further ado. Let's get into it. Yes. Minor Profits. Minor Profits by Jimmy Kajolis. It's a hard name to pronounce, man. We talk about that in the interview, too. Oh, and we got it so wrong the first time around. <laughs> All right, here we are. Lee has always had visions. Cats that weren't really there, a ragged man peering into his bedroom window, violent storms wiping out everything in their path, and much worse. His mother and his sister, Murphy, have done all they can to keep Lee grounded in the real world. But when his mother dies in a car accident, her terrible cop husband tries to adopt Lee and Murphy, and they have no choice but to flee to their grandmother. 
She lives on a property known as The Farm, which Lee and Murphy have only heard stories about. Though their grandmother is thrilled to have them arrive on her doorstep, something doesn't seem quite right on the farm. Is there a reason that their mother never brought them there? What isn't their grandmother telling them? And what glorious and terrible truths lurk behind Lee's visions? Yeah. 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 I mean, with a premise like that, like, come on. And, uh, you know, I won't go too spoilery into it, but Sandra called exactly where this book was going from the very get-go, which is really why she wanted to read it. That's just a little bit of a hint right there, and it absolutely went there, and it's great. Um, Yes, and that's not, I mean, it was like I manifested what I wanted it to be, and it was, and it was. So I forgot to look up if the book designer, uh, Siobhan Gallagher, but I believe that they also designed the Good Demon cover looking at it. It's kind of the same It's the vibe. same kind of like, like kind of piecemeal almost. It's like mixed like, media yeah. looking where it's almost like kind of pictures, kind of uh, hodgepodge like. Uh, Decoupage. Or, not a uh, mosaic. Uh, collage. Collage, thank yes, you. Yes, a collage So style. Yeah, it's kind of collage together of these kind of haunting, spooky images of like a house and eerie trees. And there's a beautiful owl situation and also a hummingbird. There's also um, a dead hummingbird at the title page of every chapter. I don't I don't like to think of it as dead. I just like to think of it as upside down. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, I mean, we love hummingbirds, so it's sad. It's a nice, ominous thing when you open each chapter that it's still there. <laughs> it's a really good cover. It's a really yeah. good design, just front to back, yeah. inside and out. It's a really, really, really pretty book. Yeah, it's like golden and like royal blue, and it's gorgeous. So Scott, do you want to start and give us your experience score for this book? I would be happy to. Uh, So Minor Profits absolutely fits into the page turner category for me. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite type of dread in a novel. It just keeps me it, the book just kept me constantly nervous and tense, and I just wanted to keep reading it till I could finish it so I could finally take a breath and relax. Yeah. And that's that's what I love in a book like this. Uh, so I, I really just could not put it down because right away I just felt – I just felt – nervous mm. and i had to get released by finishing it right because there's some mysteries that are kind of going on in this book and some really creepy stuff and you don't really know where it's going there's yeah. at any given point there's a couple well, of I different did. No, well, I'm just no i'm just kidding like i said it's because i like wanted it to be this thing and it, it, it was the thing i wanted well i figured on i figured out pretty early what the what the concept was what the yeah. conceit was yeah but i didn't know how that would how that would end up being at the end. Same. And that is what made me so nervous. At any given point, there's about five different directions that it could ultimately go. Mm -hmm. And I was so nervous about all of them. And I just, I had to find out, okay, how is this going to end? What is the resolution going to be? So at least I can have some closure and relax. Yeah. And that's a good thing. That's a really good compliment to this book. It's exactly what I want in a book like this. That's pretty pretty high praise. Um, And mine is no different. (laughs) Um, It's somewhere between a page turner and obsession for me. And um, with a little more time, you know, it's one of those things that The Good Demon was one of my favorite books of the year last year. It definitely was. Mm -hmm. And it's like, 
with time, I kind of regret that I didn't shout out that book as one of my favorites. I think I gave it an honorable mention, mm-hmm. but it was definitely one of my favorites. Um, and I, I have a feeling this one will be too, because, you know, that book, The Good Demon, sticks with me a lot. And I think about it a lot. I think about it all the time. And Minor Prophets is proving to be no different. It's going to be another one that I think about quite often. And both of them are reread situations for me. And books that we already have recommended to people, not only The Good Demon, but Minor Prophets as well. Like, we're already telling people, oh, you got to read this book, you know, don't sleep on Jimmy. He's good. Um, It is... The Southern Gothic just stuff and vibes that I love. It really just was right in your territory when yes. it came to Southern Gothic, when it comes to other themes that are that, that come up in the book that yeah. I don't want to spoil. Yes. It's just it was written for you. These books are written for me. They are. Um I think something that I like about both uh, of these novels, but of course, we're specifically talking about Minor Prophets tonight, but it's clearly um, it's relevant to both, is that his characters are very approachable. They're very believable. They all come from very understandable economic situations. They're not rich. They're not celebrities. They're not people that have their lives figured out. Mm-hmm. They're very slice of life humans. Yeah. And... Uh, I love that. And I love how he writes really strong females. He does. He he def- he definitely has a, a a good handle of that. Yes. His believability ultimately comes from his writing style in my opinion. Yes. I was curious to know if his writing style from the good demon would continue on into mm-hmm. minor prophets and it does yeah. he has this way of writing like the the protagonist is telling you verbally a story yes this would make an excellent audiobook mm-hmm. it'd be a great story to tell over a campfire it's yeah. that kind of writing style yeah and it, and it and it really immerses you. And what what's what I find important and what I'm referring to is the the characters will say things like so basically what I'm saying is it was awesome. <laughs> Just as an example. Yeah. Uh, but it's very easy to I have read other things where the author doesn't do a good job of describing what the situation is and yeah. and that's the way they describe it. It's like, "Oh, I don't really know how to describe this awesome thing." I'll just mm-hmm. the character says, "Oh, basically it was awesome." He does this really neat thing where he describes something really well in a way that you would you would consider to be good description in a book. Mm-hmm. And then adds on top of it a personal experience from the from the protagonist mm-hmm. that brings it all together. So it's not just a cop out. It's a it's a deliberate writing style that I really appreciate. Yeah, uh, we talk a little bit in the interview with him as well about you know he's from Mississippi and his books are set like in the South and uh, obviously when we talk about being Southern Gothic, right? And uh, kind of the oral tradition of the South. And how that influences his writing style. And I think it's really important because, you know, we have all these little pockets and subcultures in our own country, the United States, and other countries have them as well. And it's like the colloquialisms and the vibe and the mood and how a story is told. And I feel like he really captures that really beautifully in his writing. 
I really liked both the characters, uh, our little main protagonists, if you will, in this book, Lee and Murphy. Uh, I like the way they interacted with each other. I liked how different they are from each other. I like the closeness that they share. I like the interesting relationship they had with their mother and their stepfather. And then going to live with grandma and how that's a really complicated relationship, too. It's very, very interesting how he layers these characters together. And it, in my mind, it looks like paper mache. Like you lay down a layer of color and then you put some glue and then another layer. And then you get it? <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yes. Kind of like the covers. Yeah, it's kind of like the covers. It's all connected. Ah, it's the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I think you guys are getting the point that we freaking love this book. Should we give a little... Uh... Yeah, so let's, let's talk about who we think this book appeals to. I had a lot of trouble classifying this book. Um, ultimately, I came down to a general appeal for the book. Hmm. I, and the way I see it is anyone who's listening to this podcast is a genre fiction fan. Yes. And so anyone who's listening to this podcast should read this book. Yeah. This is, it doesn't fit into a specific category. It's classified as horror, but it has notes of fantasy realism. Um, it has notes of, I mean, it is definitely has feelings of YA while not really fitting into that category. Yeah. And, and so it has a very, it has a very broad appeal within genre fiction readers. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm going with general. If you like genre fiction, whatever genre fiction that may be, you should read this book. Uh, so for me, I think that was a really good way to wrap that up, Scott, but I'm going to say broad. Um, I do think that it appeals to a little bit of a wider audience than just your horror genre fans. Though, again, I think people who generally like fantasy or people who like horror like it, but I think it can go beyond uh, so-called genre fans. Uh, well, I I agree. When I say genre fans, I want to specify, I mean fans of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, genre in general, not just horror. No, I agree, but I'm yeah. saying it goes outside of those. And see, like I said, I had a hard I had a hard time differentiating between the two. I was between general and broad. Mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm just as comfortable with broad as I am with general. Yeah, I'm definitely going broad though. Um I think that people who like that kind of maybe Southern contemporary or Southern Gothic or people who like some YA and kind of want to get into horror uh, that, you know, like maybe they're kind of new to horror too, that they could like this or they're looking for something just kind of spooky to read around this time of year. Uh, I think this could be a really good introduction. And I think that people who are into the genres are going to feel comfortable in it too. I think it's got a unique um, place out there. So I'm saying read it. Read it. Get it into everyone's hands. Give it to everybody for Christmas or whatever you celebrate. <laughs> All right. Perfect. So without further ado, uh, we're going to take a little break, if you will. We're going to talk to Jimmy and tell him, you know, how much we love this book and pick his brain a little bit. And he's a pretty awesome dude. So I think you're going to enjoy this. And when we come back, Back, we're going to just go full spoilers. All right, 
with us today to talk about Minor Prophets, as well as his previous book that we reviewed, Good Demons. The Good Demon. The Good Demon. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Kajolis. Hi. Hi, Jimmy. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. So as uh, Scott said, you've written uh, two young adult books that we've, well, we've had the pleasure to review one on the show. We are going to be reviewing in this episode, your second novel, so that'd be The Good Demon and Minor Prophets. Uh, so Jimmy, what draws you to horror themes in your writing? Oh, I've just always loved ghost stories and horror stories ever since I was a kid. Um, I don't know if it was like just stuff my mom would tell me or just ghost stories in general, but um it's just what I've always been drawn to. I, I recently found a book of ghost stories that I had written when I was six or seven years old. And they are all just the goriest, weirdest <laughs> thing. It's like I sat down to make up my own story and immediately it was just horror. So I don't know where it comes from, but uh, yeah. it's just what I've always loved. It's in your DNA, clearly. Yeah, I, and my parents have always asked me that question, and I've never had a good answer for them. <laughs> well, you have a very particular writing style uh, in these two books. Um, can you speak about how you go about with your characters talking directly to the reader? Oh, um, th- first off, thank you so much for, for saying that I have a particular style. I, I appreciate it. Um, I, I don't know why I started doing that. Um, it just... it. it it seems to come naturally to me, but it also, um, I feel like creates a trust between the narrator and the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it tends to feel like you're being told a secret. So I, I like that kind of connection. I like trying to foster that connection. And, um, I, I don't know, you just sit down and start typing and it, you know, falls into a voice and falls into that kind of thing for me. I, I really don't know why. I've tried writing other ways and I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I I like it too. There's an intimacy with your narrator. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I'm, I'm glad it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, two out of two. It's working. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank you. Uh, I consider your works to be Southern Gothic, which is one of my personal favorite subgenres. Uh, do you consider yourself to be Southern Gothic? Um, you know, I, I try not to consider myself too much of anything if I can get away with it. But um, I'm completely happy with that characterization. Uh, so much of what I love and so much of what I grew up with, I, I came to learn was Southern Gothic. So um, I'm all in on that. That sounds great. Yeah, you don't need labels. We're not a big fan of labels around here. But you know, sometimes it it helps to guide our readers and listeners into like little pockets. So cool. Totally. Well, I realize I'm sitting here at my kitchen table with like two Flannery O'Connor books open <laughs> next to me. So I sort of maybe maybe I'm just uh, yeah the Southern Gothic thing is <laughs> Right. (laughs) Another thing that's just kind of in your DNA and kind of along those lines, how has being from the South influenced you as a storyteller? Oh, in so many ways. Uh, You know, first off, it's such a a place of of oral tradition. And, um, you know, especially in contrast with somewhere like New York, where, you know, people just get to the point as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm always reminded when I go home that I need to speak slower and let everyone take their time to tell the story and to tell all of the details of the story and to go on their digressions and just follow the entire path. Um, and I think that sort of way of 
very colloquially, very slowly and sort of long-windedly telling a story is, is something that <laughs> um, I have picked up on and been unable to let go. Um, I think that's, that's a major part of it. Um, I also think, you know, just uh, the things that are so important uh, in the South, it, it, it's almost a cliche, but, you know, it's like family, religion, um, power, things, you know, just all, just the way that all seems to work. Um, everything does move a bit slower. That's what I've always been told. I have not ever gotten to visit the South, but people told me, well, you got to slow down, walk slow, talk slow, or they'll they'll pick you out right away as <laughs> as it like Yankee Californian. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, when my parents came to visit me once up here in New York, I had to tell my dad, dad, like, you got to walk a little faster. Don't <laughs> talk to everyone you see on the street, you know, like... <laughs> If you're in an elevator, don't start just talking to everyone. It's just, you know, you need to respect, you know, because it's just so completely different um, yeah. in that way. Oh, that's really funny. It's cute. I, lo I love how even within our own country, we just have all these different little cultural ways about us. Yeah, yeah. Um, New York blew, blew my dad's mind, by the way. He loved it. So. Oh, yay! <laughs> Is he planning on going back? No, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> Once was enough, but, uh, he did love it. He still talks to me about bagels. He'd never had a real bagel before. So, oh. I mean, we're, it's like two years later. He's like, you remember when we had that bagel? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. sure do. <laughs> so I want to go back. You had talked about you had found some stuff from your childhood. Uh, what is the first story that you remember writing or in, in your case, maybe even telling? Oh, um. I guess the first one I remember writing was based on a nightmare I had when I was a kid. It's sort of like, uh, it doesn't really have much of a plot. It's about this kid who finds a, uh, an emerald and there's a sign, there's like a tag on the, it's like left on his doorstep. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but <laughs> it's like, it, there's a little tag on it that says, do not touch. So immediately the kid bends over, picks it up and takes it into his room. And then a skeleton climbs out of his closet and kills him. Oh no. It's like, it, it doesn't make any sense, but that was like, I, I don't know. That's where that one came from. Um, I, I hope my storytelling has gotten better since then, but you know, that's that's just the the way it is yeah yeah it's it's a cautionary tale it said don't pick it up and he did yeah it's like i guess you know the first story you're you always hear growing up and in, in church is and we went to church three times a week was uh you know adam and eve hey don't eat that apple <laughs> and the first thing you do is take the apple and eat it <laughs> true it's it's an old trope it is <laughs> yeah it seems to be seems to be real so um yeah, I guess that that sort of fear of uh, breaking the rules has always stuck with me in a way too. So. Well, church three times a week—that sounds um, it sounds a little intense for a lot of us. I love, uh, we love <laughs> how religion and spirituality plays a big part in your books. Can you talk to us a little bit about that theme in your writing? Uh, sure. Um, you know, like I said, uh, I think Flannery O'Connor said that uh, she referred to the, the Christ haunted South, um, that uh, religion is such a fundamental part of everyone's lives, whether they believe it or not. You know, mm -hmm. everyone goes to church on Sunday or some kind of religious service on Sunday or, or whatever their holy day is, um, because that's where so much of uh, 
just the community comes from. It's like a like a community meeting place as much as it is like a spiritual place. So that's just always a part of, of the daily life where I grew up. Um, and that carries with it some very beautiful things, uh, a sense of community, you know, hope, um, a bigger sense of meaning and, you know, and beautiful lessons of forgiveness and things like that. But it can also carry a much darker side Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when the people in charge are very destructive people. Um, and so I think that so much of my sort of worldview and morality was built and sense of right and wrong sort of came from that. And as I got older and started pushing back against that and questioning a lot of things that I've been raised with, um, it, it kind of that friction was sort of my uh, lens through which to understand the world. Does that make sense? I just yes. went on a long ramble. Yes, no, Absolutely. no, no. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of like the the lens through which I know how to view things, and it, it also and there's this way that uh, when you're raised in a world where every everything is so supernaturally charged, like there are angels and demons everywhere everything is fighting for your soul you know the stakes are always heaven or hell eternity um that seems to be a a, a, it just raises the stakes in this way that i I really appreciate it's a wonderful part of your books that gives great flavor to the writing so Noah, we're really happy to hear that there's a particular spiritual worldview in minor prophets that grandma has in particular about uh when she's talking about christ how she doesn't believe in him but he's still part of the the major idea is that kind of what you're talking about is that kind of the worldview that you're playing with it is in some way i think that she is has a, a little bit more of um, a kind of spiritually open view than um, a lot of the people I grew up with. But um, it's also, uh, you know, there's some problems with that one too. I, I, I think she's a really interesting character and one that I, I still kind of think about a lot. Um, I think there's this, oh, I can't, I'm, I wanted to quote a Nick Cave lyric to you, but I've, I've <gasps> for, I'm going to butcher it. So I won't. <laughs> but, um, you can it, paraphrase. It, we love it's Nick one, Cave. Yeah. Oh, I just saw him do a Q and A in New York. It was like the greatest thing I've ever experienced. Wow. Um, I cried like four times in it. He's just so good. But uh, uh-huh. it's something where he. It's in one of the one of the songs up, "Push the Sky Away," and it it's where he just starts listing a bunch of um, parts from different religions, and then he brings up mermaids, and he says, "Why not? Why not? Why not?" And I mm-hmm. thought that was good. You know, it's just sort of a a cosmic openness. Um, and possibility. So I've always been interested in in that kind of thing. I love that too. And you know, if you, uh, if you don't believe that magic and miracles can happen, then they certainly won't happen to you. That is very true. (laughs) (laughs) So Jimmy, what is your favorite part of the writing process? Oh, I just, I know this is not something I think a lot of people say, but I, I love actually writing. It's such a freedom from consciousness in a way mm. that you just get to dive into this other character, into this other world and sort of lose yourself for however many hours that you can. And um, I love sit, waking up every morning, drinking my coffee and getting to work. It, it just is the best feeling to me. Um, mm. I know a lot of people talk about how much they don't like writing, which I, I completely understand and respect. But um, to go back to that Nick Cave Q&A, there was something that uh, somebody asked him if uh, writing songs for him was, you know, 
involved him constantly going to these dark places and if that was difficult and he just said no creation and writing for me is an act of joy mm. it makes me happy and and that's really how I feel even when my writing is going really poorly I still just genuinely enjoy doing it mm. so I guess I would say that that's that's my favorite part of it I like that. That reminds me, Scott over here, he's an avid fisherman. And it's like even a bad day of fishing is still better than the worst day of work. So exactly. Best day of work. work. Oh, sorry. I'm clearly not the, (laughs) I am not the fisherman. (laughs) Uh, So can you just kind of share with us and maybe plug some of your favorite books and authors? I mean, especially we love to hear about horror, fantasy, and sci-fi, but whoever you want to name that you'd like, uh, you know, people to experience if they haven't yet. Oh, goodness. Um, I could talk for <laughs> the next three or four hours on that. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, lately, I've been loving all of Claire Legrand's books. I think she's awesome. Oh, we yeah. love her. Um, yeah. I just, uh, I'm halfway through, I'm going to say his name wrong, Nathan Ballingrud. Have you ever heard of him? No. I haven't. He has, he has a, a new, very, very adult, very scary uh, short story collection called Wounds. That is awesome Ooh. and like dark, dark. And I, I've loved that. Um, you know, I always love Shirley Jackson. She's yeah. my eternal favorite. Um, what have I got right here? <laughs> um, oh, I've been rereading um, all of Hellblazer oh. uh, the, the, from from the start. And um, I'm like 18. Of, uh, I've been buying the big trades. I'm like 18 in at this point, And that's been really fun. Um uh, John Constantine was my favorite comic book character growing up. Yes. Completely. For a lot of all of the reasons I've just been, all the things <laughs> I've been talking about. Right. Um, I always loved him so much. Uh, so that um, lately I, I stumbled on a bunch of um, fortune telling books at a, and on a, from a used bookstore. And I've been Ooh. reading those. Those are really interesting. Like uh, how to tell um, a fortune with a, like a pack of regular playing cards, which is totally interesting and i'm not good at yet um but that's been cool uh let me think what else have i read recently that i just completely oh um have you guys read sarah gran uh no i don't think so she wrote this one of this i think the scariest uh possession book i've ever read it's called come closer oh um it is (laughs) awesome See, you can't go too dark for me. I I live in the dark places. Scott can't do possession. Mm. <laughs> That's where he is it's, out. <laughs> it's a rough one for me. <laughs> no, it's a, it's okay. Look, um, I I was completely obsessed with possession stories. Um, when I was a kid, my mom used to tell me about her great uncle Verlin, who uh, apparently was like a Baptist minister in Tennessee, and he used to cast demons out of people. Love it. Um, that was like a bedtime story. So that's just kind of like, I remember in youth group once they played us a tape of an exorcism. And I think I had nightmares for four or five years after that. So like, um, anyway, but uh, Sarah, Sarah Grant's awesome. She writes this detective series about this woman named Claire DeWitt. And I love those books so much. I think they're the greatest. And they're a bit supernatural, a bit scary, but uh, totally good. Oh, I'd love to read a detective story from you one day. No pressure, but I think that'd be really fascinating. Oh, I would love that. I read a lot of of crime and detective books. Like, uh, I love Megan Abbott. I love all of her books um, deeply. And uh, my friend William Boyle, just, you know, these dark, doomed books. (laughs) I just really love them. (laughs) 
So it sounds like you do read a lot. What does your library look like? Like your own personal library at home? Are you like your characters where you've got just such a mix of nonfiction and biographies? And Yeah, I kind of just, I, I tried to be as open as possible in my reading. And uh, I try to, I, I, buy, I buy a lot of new books and I try to read new books as they come out. But I'm also a huge fan of the library and the used bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, because you never know what's going to wash up, you know, uh, like, uh, there's one particular book table on St. Mark's and Avenue A that's run by this woman named Jen, who I always go visit because she always has the strangest stuff. Like it'll be a Japanese sword making manual <laughs> and I'll just immediately buy that and read it. Or, um, you know, Vincent Price's cookbook. I found that one time. That was awesome. Yes. Uh, you know, just, you know, weird, like badly translated books on German cinema, you know, weird biographies of cult leaders. I found a couple of those, but, uh, and, and then, you know, poetry and everything else. So it's really, um, I try to just read whatever looks interesting and not think too hard mm. about what I'm doing until I'm into it. <laughs> I like um, that. I, that. That's good reading advice, actually. If it piques your interest and you're going to learn something new too. Yeah. I mean, I've read a lot of junk because of that. <laughs> But um, I've also stumbled onto some really amazing things. Oh, cool. Well, can you hint about any future projects you're working on? I am currently uh, about um, mostly finished with a middle grade book uh, that I'm pretty excited about that um, is is sort of, um, you know, again, the things that I always do. But it's like... (laughs) following this uh, young girl who is sort of an initiate into this religious order kind of set in a sort of fantasy Western type world. Um, and that's been fun to write. Uh, I am working on in a, a book for um, a non-way book, you know, for adults, I guess. Some of the categories get so confusing to me, but it is yeah. sort of um, a supernatural noir kind of thing. And uh, mm-hmm. I hope that it's good. <laughs> it's really hard to write. But I'm doing my best. So, <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, we agree. We don't um, review a ton of quote unquote middle grade here on the show, but we're always like, you know, YA adult, new adult, young adult, whatever the heck. Just, you know, there's good writing in all of it. There really is. Um, and some some of the things that, you know, like uh, the pure sort of fairy tale world you can get into in a middle grade book is is really freeing and, and very fascinating. Uh, I've enjoyed reading a lot of those books. You know, I grew up reading people like John Bellairs who were, did the house with the clock in its walls and things yeah. like that. And, you know, so there's always just a, a space in my heart for those kinds of books, you know, um, books to scare children. <laughs> <laughs> very important to me. When you're writing books and, and you're kind of, you have an idea in your head, are you thinking about who it's for before you start writing it? Or does that come later on in the process? How do you go about, you know, picking your age range, I suppose? Uh, well, and to, in total, in the spirit of total honesty, if I have a contract, then I have to yeah. <laughs> deliver an age Fair. range. But um, for enough. the most part, uh, for the most part, no, I, I don't think about it at all. I usually just write a book and then give it to my agent. And she's like, yes, this is for teenagers. You need to cut these parts or you need to add this part, or this is for kids. We need to turn down the violence. You know, it's just sort of like, uh, I just kind of let them tell me. (laughs) That's, you know, I just, and just write whatever book, whatever the book seems to want to be. 
and it, you know, it usually finds a category with a minimal amount of editing. So, um, I, again, it sounds so dumb, but I, I try not to think about it if I can. I try to just sit down and write. No, that's fi- that's absolutely fair Doesn't in our sound opinion. Dumb. It sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Thanks for that <laughs> encouragement. So, uh, where can people find you, Jimmy? Are you doing any any tours? I know the book came out uh, a few weeks ago, but are are you going to be doing any book signings anywhere? And where can people find you online? Um, as far as a book tour, I'm not I'm not doing like an official tour, but I am trying to you know hop into bookstores and book things where I can. Um, online, I'm at, on Twitter, and my website is jimmycajolas.com. I think it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Technology, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, yeah, so you can. I, I think I'm pretty easy to find online. Um, as far as uh, you know, seeing me in public, I don't <laughs> go out very much. But um, I would love to get to do more book tour stuff in the future if I can. So, well, if you ever come to Northern California, we love to offer this to people. We have this really amazing, enormous, uh, enormous couch. It's a sectional, so you can sleep on it. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. That's Absolutely. so nice of you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and then we'll we'll show you off to people. We'll figure it out. Thank you. Northern California is the most beautiful part of the country. I really believe that. Great. I, I 100% agree with yes, you. Yes, thank you. Not even going to argue. <laughs> I remember the, the first time I saw the redwoods up there, I was just like, I didn't know trees could look like that. <laughs> I just stared up until I got dizzy. <laughs> It's certainly a a good way to make yourself remember to be humble and that like, you know, these ancient trees and what are we on the the blip, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's crazy to think about. It makes me so happy. So (laughs) thank you for offering your sectional couch. It's very kind of you. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you for writing these books. We love these books. Your books and your characters mean a lot to me. Oh, I'm going to get emotional. Um, (laughs) I'm going to get emotional. Thank you. They, they mean a great deal to me personally. So thank you for writing them. Oh my them. gosh. And I'm thank like, you so much for saying that. I'm a stone hearted horror person, so I don't get emotional. So damn you, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Um, horror can break your heart. That's really just what it like. Yes. Horror movies in books are so beautiful and they have an access to, to that part of us that, is afraid of the dark and and also the longing. No, I, I totally agree. Good horror brings out every emotion. <laughs> yes, it really does. All right, Jimmy. Well, we're going to let you go. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I appreciate it so much. You you were both wonderful. Um, thank you for your kindness. <laughs> are back welcome to the spoiler section for minor profits so excited to talk about this book with the spoiler gloves off (laughs) so okay where to begin i think we should start with the elephant in the room this is a cult book yay i love cults Really? I mean, I love learning about them. They're one of my favorite aspects of true, true crime and sociological study. Um, I, But especially in a horror sense, I love books, movies, TV shows that have cults in them. Uh, it really speaks 
to me. I find it so fascinating. And what Jimmy does in this book that's so interesting and added to my fear mm-hmm. is he kind of asks he kind of asked the question, what if there's some truth to mm, at least cult. this cult? Yes, what if and what ideology. if there's some goodness yes. in it? There's some parts of this that are very gray, that are very ambiguous. Um now obviously <laughs> Grandma shoves that over the line. Oh, yeah. In her justification. But what makes it creepy is there's a supernatural element to this, of course, with Jeremiah. And also that there is some truth to it. Like you said, that is what makes it really scary is that the cult is not completely wrong. They're not just like these totally fringy people with like this totally out of left field thing. It's like, no, they're communicating with this kind of shadow world and Jeremiah and Lee are these very special conduits. And that's very disturbing when you sit back and think about it, that it's like, this is real. It's real. And is the spirit evil? Is the spirit good? Is the spirit just a, a nat- natural force that it depends on who's delivering the the message? Like, yeah. what is the actual like? Where does this where does this swing? Because yeah. it's certainly been corrupted. Yes. By 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 Grandma and by Jeremiah. Yeah. But was but was it corrupted by them because it is bad in general corrupt or was that were they just the they misinterpret it and yes. kind of pervert it to their own way which is really more towards what i lean into is that the spirit is fine <laughs> uh, just like a lot of you know religious beliefs are fine but then it's the people who decide to interpret it and control others and kind of put their will over other people that makes it bad but then here's the question lee left yes he had to well did he yeah so the question is if 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 it was just corrupted by jeremiah and grandma Mm -hmm. and the spirit was not good or bad lee being a good person should he maybe have stayed not necessarily followed what his grandmother was forcing him to do Mm -hmm. but should he have stayed and been a force for good or was he already corrupted too far there's a lot of questions for me as far as that which i mean is wonderful and I love the fact that Lee misses the power and the attention and he still kind of dreams about it. And like, what if I just went back and like did it right? And it's a very interesting callback to the absolute power corrupts absolutely Mm -hmm. kind of argument because this is kind of how I interpreted it is that how to put this. I don't want to say super anti-religion, but a little bit that once you start putting humans in it to, you know, make decisions and kind of shepherd people, that it it goes bad. It's just the nature of humans is that they're going to ruin a pure thing. So it's almost like you have to just take the profits out of it and because they're just going to corrupt it every time. That's kind of what what I got from it is, you know, because it kind of becomes like a mafia. It kind of becomes like a gang. It becomes a cult. It becomes, you know, like the people just by our nature, we pollute 
the things. And the people who are in the cult, his followers, are they really in control of their own actions? There's a lot of points when, when it feels like he's kind of manipulating and taking over their their self-interest and their, their their actions. Well, and it's like sometimes he's kind of doing it for, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intention reasons. But it's like, is that right to take away someone's will? Because, you know, the, the spiritual side, the spiritual, the supernatural psychic side tells him what to say to people. And it's like, but you're taking away their free will by doing so. And yeah, so it gets into a lot of complicated looks at organized religion, and which I love, and I eat up with a big giant wooden cauldron spoon. <laughs> because it's fascinating to me, the nature of religion corrupting people, and the idea of like, well, I'm doing this for their own good. And it's like, right, but you're still a person. And should you be exerting your will over another like that? Mm, I don't think so. It doesn't sit right. And I have to say the 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 good or evil or neutral side of this spirit ultimately comes down to the requirement of having a sacrifice. Yeah, that's not and, cool. And if you believe that the <laughs> sacrifice was necessary, at that point there there is no justification for no. for the farm. If that was something that that grandma believed, that grandma enforced to basically have him be under her control, in that case, it, it opens it up again to the question, it, was this ultimately a good thing that had been corrupted? And I guess it really depends on, on which one of those two things you believe. Yeah, um, it's fascinating. And the manipulation of grandma, I think, is really, really interesting because she has a lot of good traits about her, but then she also is so... I keep using this word, but I can't think of a better word, corrupted by the power and the organization that it's like she loses herself. Like she doesn't treat Murphy well because Murphy's not the special prophet. And she kind of has a manipulation and abuse over Lee, even though she loves him. And it's like, ugh, it gets into like, I'm sure this calls back to a lot of people, relationships that they've had with like parental figures in their life, where it's like, I know this person loves me and I want to please them, but they're not treating me right. Can we talk about the way that Jimmy sets those kind of things up, though? Sure. Because he, he creates this level of mistrust and yeah. then throws uh, throws something incredibly trustworthy at you. There was a wrench. But but there's this, this level of mistrust of everyone in there. From the very get-go, I didn't trust grandmother. And like he loads it up for so long that you feel like she keeps saying they're going go to go. she's going to go to the police and she claims that she went there first thing in the oh, morning. Oh, yeah, and you're like, this is like, such a that lie. Totally didn't happen. And then it turns out that she did. Yes. Like, okay. Um, maybe she's on the level. And then with Murphy, like you, you know, you really like her. She's kind of a wild child, but she's like, she's always, she's always there for Lee. Yeah. And then, you know, but there's kind of a, there is a bit of a, of a selfishness to her. There's a little bit of a self-centeredness. Well, and to she her. was kind of spoiled by their mom. Yeah. She was, she was mom's favorite. And so there's that level of, you know, she says that, oh yeah, grandma doesn't, doesn't treat me well. And or you're like, 
Murphy, are you just being a hater? Yeah. Like, what's going on? Are you just jealous because Lee's getting all the attention and, and doesn't have to work as hard as you do, clearly? Because it's always been so much easier for Murphy than it has been for Lee. And when the tables are turned, it creates an interesting sibling dynamic between the two as well. So he does a really good job of creating this level where you don't really trust anyone's opinion because you don't trust anyone's opinion, but there's a lot of evidence to show that, that some of them may be right and and ambiguity exactly yes um that moment when when uh the sheriff shows up yes was a was a was kind of the moment of the book that i went this is going to be a ride it seems like such a small thing mm-hmm. but for me to have this strong distrust in the character and then suddenly oh there's this she was telling the truth yeah everything that she was saying was actually the truth up until now right so what does that mean now about all of that mistrust that's been built up in me and that same thing happens when you know the the fateful night when they think harold is there and you know they're like oh my gosh we got to get out of here he's gonna kill us and grandma's like oh okay like calm down but then at the same time she is you know, got the shotgun or whatever. And then there are people actually out there and she gets them to the barn and you're just like, what the heck is going on? Like, is grandma on the level? Is grandma not on the level? Who are these damn people? <laughs> like, it, It's so perfect. And that was the point when I realized, okay, grandma cannot be trusted, but she may not. I, I didn't know if she was actually bad at that point or if she was just a little bit misguided. Yeah. And can we just say, as a rule, this this is a throwback to Hereditary, the movie, as which I love, as well as this. You know, if someone says, don't go in the attic, go in the attic. Always go in the attic because someone's up in your attic. Yeah. Hi, go up there, like sneak up there that night. Yeah, someone's up there and they are sleeping there and possibly the decapitated head of your loved ones <laughs> and their bodies are also up there. So just go, just go, just check it out. Also, same thing with the barn. Mm-mm. Go in the barn. Oh, yeah, immediately. Get in that barn. Uh, so some of the horror imagery is really beautiful and brutal in this book. Definitely, um, I, I really want to emphasize the beauty of it. It's the pretty sorts of gore and yuckiness, but is really poetically executed. Um, very, very fascinating. I loved all the supernatural parts of this book, too. It's a, it's an artistic sort of horror. It is. It's very artistic horror. And how much did you love finding the tapes in the tree? That was weird. That was weird. Well, I mean, it turns out it was Grandma. Was it Grandma? I think it says it was Grandma. Okay. But, um, yeah, and just listening to the impassioned child minister uh, going on and on about a lot of things that were very good and sounded very very good. So my final question for the book as far as ambiguity was concerned. Mm-hmm. And this is might be just something I thought up, I don't know, but is the spirit real? Mm-hmm. There's there's certainly there's certainly real supernatural things happening. Yes. But is the spirit real or is the spirit just Jeremiah and Jeremiah's father? Is this a supernatural kind of a ghost sort of thing where Jeremiah is the spirit and has been feeding these these visions and is basically continuing on his work and his father's work through Lee? Uh-huh. Or was or are they actually prophets of the spirit? And I'm using air quotes. 
I'm not positive, but I think they are prophets of the spirit. Because I think that's more, like I said, for me, a big way I interpreted the book and take away from it is that the spirit is fine. The spirit is good. I mean, the divine is what it is. It's non-judgmental and it's good and bad and light and dark and life and death. But when you put so, so easily corruptible humans into the mix, um, things get perverted and things get wrong. By the way, uh, take a shot every time we've said corrupt or corruptible or any sort of uh, take on corrupt. <laughs> take a shot. It's a drinking game episode. And if you really want to get wasted, add mistrust into that. <laughs> um one last thing I wanted to touch on was the character arc and turn of Harold. Yeah. I want to talk I, I want to talk about that because I have mixed feelings on it. It is Harold, isn't it? I believe so. Horace. Uh, so just FYI, Scott and I realized that we've been calling <laughs> stepdad Harold and his name is Horace. <laughs> yes. So please, every time we mention Harold and you're like, who the F is Harold? It was Horace. It yes. was Horace, actually. Horace. Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing is I think that uh, let's talk about him a little bit because I <laughs> I <th> I <laughs> I don't want to say that it's like, oh, it was so good that torture he went through. But I think it um, <laughs> it helped him <laughs> to soften a little bit towards the children. And I loved all the times when Lee saw Horace's horrible childhood. And it made him have a lot of questions and it made him have a lot of compassion. I thought that was really important because it showed that Lee didn't completely lose his humanity. And I'm not saying that the things that Horace did to them were okay, but it turns out he really likes these kids, but his own really screwed up life made it so he couldn't be a good father figure towards them. And he really did love their mom too. And it kind of like extends this olive branch to Horace that made me kind of like, well, you're not so different than the rest of the characters in these books, really. Like you're, you're complicated. Horace is a complicated character and his turn at the end was complicated for me because he he set up as such a demon at, mm -hmm. through the beginning of the book and then also talked about as such a demon through a lot of the rest of the book. There's no point when when he's described as being physically abusive. Sure. And there's there's He does some like kind of mentally uncool things. Yes. And intimidation. And that's somewhat problematic. Sure. Uh, for him to then be okay. Well, like I said, there's something where it's like he kind of <laughs> kind of goes through a journey with his torturedom where he kind of comes out the other side and is better. <laughs> Again, I'm not saying it was okay that we all tortured Horace for so long, but it certainly made him turn over a bit of a new leaf. I think what's important in Horace's character development and, and the development of the three of their relationship is that their communication improves at the end. Yes, and kind of like how how Horace was abused by his dad. It's kind of the same thing where it's like, look at what another one person can do to another person, especially a parental figure or a prophet or whoever that you can make people good or 
bad based on how you indoctrinate and treat them. And it's kind of a little bit of, it's really not so different than the other, you know, bigger themes in this book. Um, And I appreciate that he was like, I wanted you kids. I do. And it's not for any bad reason to have control or manipulate them. He just wants to care for them. And I cried when he gave Lee that book. There's something very spiritual about sharing a book with people. I mean, we made a whole f***ing podcast about it, (laughs) about talking about books and sharing that. And like the connection that they found through that, that it's like, it seems so unlikely, you know, this book, but actually was like a huge bridge for the two of them. That's really sweet. And it made me cry. But all of his characters almost make me cry when I think about them too much, just like his books and all of it just makes me emotional. Damn you, Jimmy. He he writes very complex, damaged adults. And he does it in a way that is at least understandable the way that they have reached the level that they're at. It's not like he's telling you forgive them. And it's not like he's saying everything they did is fine. But it's like, just look at them as what they are, which is human. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it's time to give our final final score, mm-hmm. our quote unquote uh, objective score. Um, <laughs> that's that's never really terribly objective, but we have to give it something out of something, right? Yes. Let's do hummingbirds. All right. I'm gonna give this book nine hummingbirds out of ten hummingbirds. It's beautiful, it's poetic, it's gothic, it's dark, it's supernatural, it's cults. It's just yet another time when he wrote a book that makes me so happy and feel so connected and so uh, just like you appreciate me as a reader and thank you so much. I feel so I so, I feel so seen and appreciated by you, Jimmy. I'm going to give uh, Minor Prophets eight hummingbirds out of ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe maybe throw a dead hummingbird in there too, <laughs> just for a good measure. Uh, there's two concepts in the book that Jimmy explores and does a fantastic job of. One, what if cults uh, spiritually were real? And two, what if the spiritual leader of a specific cult was actually kind of a good person, but um, maybe the cult itself is still bad. Not yeah, cults. Cults just aren't great. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of stuff with the farm seemed good and seemed nice and seemed, you know, almost it's communal. It's utopic. Utopic. That's the perfect word. And I was left wondering at the end if, you know, the spirit was good or bad or neutral or, you know, if it was just corrupted by grandma and Jeremiah. I wish that had been explored just a tiny bit more. That's my own personal thing. Mm. The ambiguity, I'm sure, really served you incredibly well. That's ambiguity. You guys know that. But when it comes to those two concepts, Jimmy did such a great job of, of exploring them. His writing style is very unique and and inventive and I enjoy it. So yeah, eight eight hummingbirds and maybe a dead one. <laughs> Um, can I just, can I tell my dad hummingbird story real quick? Yes. So I've always loved hummingbirds. Who doesn't freaking love hummingbirds? They're beautiful. Yeah, they're amazing. They're absolutely these amazing creatures. 
And a couple of weeks ago, at my work, we have... This is kind of a sad story. It is a sad story, but it's relevant. Um, We have these big glass windows and doors, and birds crash into them all the time. And a few times, I've been able to literally sit with the bird, hold it in my hand until it um, comes to. And it's an amazing experience to get to hold a bird in your hand like that, because I personally don't believe in keeping birds as um, domesticated I think they should be free to fly. <laughs> it, hey, I'm a Sagittarius. That's who I am. Um, but sometimes they aren't, you know, they don't make it. And they hit the glass too hard and their necks crack. And that was the case with a hummingbird. And I went outside and I could see its, its little tongue was sticking out. I'm like, well, this guy's a goner. And the neck was so clearly snapped. So I picked him up and I was going to carry him out to a nice place to lay him to rest And I was like, wait a minute, I don't think I'm ever going to get a chance to hold a hummingbird again. So I really took my time with it to the point where my coworkers were like, what happened? And I was like, (laughs) I needed to spend time with the hummingbird. Um, It was a ruby throat. And it was absolutely the most astoundingly beautiful thing I think I've ever seen in my life in person. Like, and especially to hold and have like an intimate touch with, if you will. It's little feathers, like the way you turned them were at once emerald and then gold and black. And I, I could not believe just tilting the, the, the body to and fro, I could see all these different colors. And then the throat, the rubies, it really looked like a necklace. It looked like this beautiful layered ruby necklace. And every time you turn it, it just lights up. It just looks like fire. It, it, it was just incredible. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how stunningly beautiful these creatures are. And I can imagine being in the grove and being surrounded by them, how spiritual that would be. And then also seeing the the little dead one, <laughs> ominous, at the start of every chapter. But it was like, mm, I've, I know that it's still beautiful. It's scary and it's bad, but I know that that creature is still beautiful because I've held it in my hands. And it kind of gave this book more weight for me and another kind of aspect to chew over my own connection with hummingbirds. So yeah, look at that. Look at how the world works. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. (laughs) All right, everybody. We can't wait to share a couple more scary stories with you and hopefully some spooky adventures in our high holy month of October. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm Sandra. I'm Scott. Please keep reading past your bedtime. (laughs) 